This morning we're going to consider Haman's rage. Haman's rage. And we're looking at Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through to 6. Last week we considered a fiendish plot to kill King Ahasuerus or Exerxes, whatever you have in your version of the Bible. A fiendish plot to kill him. He was the king of the Medes and the Persians. The plan was known unto Mordecai, who sat in the king's gate uh, as a royal servant of some sort, and he informed Queen Esther, his daughter by adoption. Esther then informed the king, inquiries were made, and the two culprits were hanged. Details of the assassination plot were kept on record in the Chronicles. In today's passage, we're introduced to another key character in this book. His name is Haman. Look again at verse 1 of Esther chapter 3. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamidatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman above all his other princes. Just to give you some idea of how powerful and how important Haman became as a result of that promotion, in chapter 1 and verse 14, seven princes are named. Haman was elevated above all the other princes to become the second most important person in an empire of 127 provinces, according to chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's have a look at verses 2 through to 6 again. All All the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, or therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. In obedience to the king's commandment, All the king's servants bowed and they reverenced Haman. All except Mordecai. The servants asked him why he was disobeying the royal commandment to bow and reverence Haman. They spoke to him daily, but he wouldn't listen to them. 
The king's servants told Haman about Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him. Consequently, Haman, who had up until that time, so it would seem, have been unaware that there was anyone who refused to bow down and reverence him. So, he was filled with anger. He was filled with anger when he heard that there was one who remained upright whilst all the others bowed down before him. I like what the 19th century Baptist minister Alexander McLaren had to say about Mordecai's refusal to bow down. He said, if he had bowed, he would have been one more nobody. But his not bowing made him somebody who had to be crushed. As to why Mordecai's fellow servants informed on him, perhaps they thought that they would earn browning points with Prime Minister Haman. Also Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Perhaps they wanted to see if being a Jew exempted him somehow. More generally, perhaps if they saw that Haman's attitude concerning someone not bowing down to him was an attitude of not being bothered, then they would not they would not bow down to either bow down to him either as it turned out Haman was furious so much so that he sought to destroy not only Mordecai but all the Jews in the empire we can spend some time considering Mordecai's refusal to bow down and reverence Haman It's as well to understand that the word that has been translated from the Hebrew and translated reverence can mean worship as in worshipping God but also it has other meanings. It can simply refer to paying homage to a person of superior rank. For example in Genesis chapter 42 and verse 6 that same Hebrew word is not translated reverence, it is translated bowed down. In that verse, Genesis 42 verse 6, Joseph's brothers bowed down before him. Joseph was second in authority to Pharaoh in Egypt, as Haman was second in authority to Ahasuerus in Medo-Persia. Bowing down and reverencing people of high rank was and still is the custom not only in the Middle East but elsewhere in the world as well. Even if you didn't think you realised that or know that, you probably did. Because you need look no further than the UK. What happens in Britain? The honour and the respect that is shown to Her Majesty the Queen by her servants, her loyal subjects, who bow down before her. They're not worshipping her as some kind of God, but they do nevertheless bow down before her, acknowledging that she is the Queen. So it can't, it can't be said for certain that bowing down and reverencing Haman was intended to be anything more than paying homage 
to a very important person. But even that may have been unacceptable to Mordecai the Jew because to the Jews were given God's laws. The promises of God were first given to the Jews and so on. As such, Mordecai may have considered himself to be above the Gentiles. We've seen a lot of that in our evening studies in Romans. That was, and that still is the case, with certain Jews considering themselves to be above everyone else. Even if that person is of great importance, such as Haman. Furthermore, not only was the man whom Mordecai the Jew supposed to bow down to and reverence a Gentile, he was an Agagite, according to verse 1. That means that Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites and from the line of Agag, which was a common name for the kings of the Amalekites. So we can see from verse 1 there that Haman descended from the Amalekites of the royal line. You need to understand that there was a lot of bad history between the Jews and the Amalekites. For example, about a thousand years earlier, when the Israelites were in Rephidim, in the wilderness, having been delivered by the Lord from slavery in Egypt, the Amalekites fought them. Details of that battle are given in Exodus chapter 17, which I want to read to you now. Exodus chapter 17, I'm going to read from verse 8. You'll see the bad blood between the Israelites and the Amalekites. Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose out men and go out, fight with Amalek. To tomorrow, sorry, tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron and her went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and he called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation 
to generation. Furthermore, in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 18, that verse further informs us that the Amalekites struck the hindmost or furthest back of the vast number of Israelites. You've got to understand that there were perhaps two million or so Israelites that had been delivered out of slavery in Egypt, passed through that corridor of water when the water, the Red Sea was um, parted, about two million of them crossing over into the wilderness. And then when the Amalekites struck, they struck from behind. And what is the significance of that? The ones who were struck first would have been the weakest, such as the elderly and those with young children. Moses, who was an old man, watched the battle from a hill whilst his eventual successor, Joshua, led the Israelites. When Moses' arms were raised, Israel prevailed, and when his arms were lowered, the Amalekites prevailed. Therefore, he had help to keep his arms raised and the enemy was defeated with the edge of the sword. In Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 19, God promised that he would utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. In the meantime, the Amalekites continued to be Israel's enemy. For example, about 500 years after the Battle of Rephidim, the Lord, speaking through his prophet Samuel, said to the first king of Israel, Saul, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. That's referring to Rephidim. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. In other words, everything. From the youngest to the oldest, including their animals. Saul obeyed not the commandment of the Lord the Amalekites were not utterly destroyed. And that brings us back to, the, to one of the descendants of Agag, Haman the Agagite, who wanted to kill all the Jews in the Medo-Persian Empire just because one Jew, Mordecai, refused to bow down and reverence him. There's another possible reason why Mordecai refused to bow down and reverence Haman. Since, as already been said, it was and still is the custom for people in the Middle East to bow down and to pay homage to people of a superior rank, you'd have to think, why did the king, why did Ahasuerus need to issue a commandment to do so? The people were going to do it anyway. Unless the king required them to do more than simply bow down and acknowledge Haman's importance as Prime Minister. Maybe there was something more in it. 
In other words, it may well have been an order from the king to worship Haman in the highest possible sense. In other words, to afford him divine worship. That seems quite likely when you consider that in the previous empire, the Babylonian empire, a Jew by the name of Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. Why was he thrown into a lion's den? His crime was that he disobeyed a royal decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days except for King Darius, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Also, there was the Roman Empire of which it has been said the impulse that led to the deification of the Roman emperors came from the east. The pharaohs and various others, including Alexander the Great, were worshipped as divinities, both while living and when dead. When Rome conquered the east, the same divine honours were transferred to the Roman proconsuls. Naturally, when a single ruler of the empire appeared, he was acclaimed as a god in the eastern provinces. Meanwhile, the way had been prepared for the imperial worship in the minds of the Romans themselves. The heroes of Roman legend, whom the Romans accepted as historical personages and as the founders of the nation, were believed to be of divine descent and were themselves honoured as deities. It was natural, therefore, that the founder of the empire, a new and greater Rome, should likewise be regarded as a god and be accorded the same homage. Nothing has changed. Don't think to yourself that it's ridiculous that all those people would have been required to bow down and worship Haman as if he was some kind of god. Just look today. What is happening today? The fact is, when you remove the only true God, someone else will always take God's place. And that someone else is one of us. One of the ways that sin manifests itself is that people have a tendency to inflate their sinful egos and they are prone to exalt themselves and to exalt others. Especially when they say in their heart, There is no God. Instead of worshipping the creator God, people exalt and worship themselves and also they worship and idolise others, such as movie stars, musicians, sports personalities and celebrities. They're all worshipped as if they were some kind of God. When you consider man's sinful propensity to exalt the creature, instead of the creator, it shouldn't surprise you that there are tyrannical world leaders and communist regimes that deny God, they make it a serious crime to worship God and they demand worship and adoration from their subjects. Failure to comply is not conducive to remaining alive. That was clearly seen to be the case at a fairly recent missionary meeting 
that focused on the challenges and difficulties of reaching the people of, the, the, of communist North Korea with the gospel of Christ. In that meeting, we saw a video of King, Kim Il-sung, who was the founding leader of North Korea, receiving excessive praise and adoration by his fearful subjects. Also, Kim Il-sung was declared eternal president of the republic after his death. Can you imagine that? Being declared the eternal president when you die. What nonsense. But these things are happening. Haman, who had been exalted above all the other princes in the Medo-Persian Empire and was second only to the king, had all the king's servants prostrating themselves before him, quite possibly as if he was God. All but one, that is. You might have thought that just one person refusing to bow down and reverence him would have been too insignificant for him to bother about, but not so. He was enraged. Just one person by the name of Mordecai refusing to bow down, to honour Haman's high office, his high position, to worship him perhaps, seemed to outweigh all the adulation that he received from everyone else. We can see that to be the case in chapter 5, Esther chapter 5. Look at verses 10 10 through to 13. We see the mentality of Haman here. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above all the princes and servants of the king. He's having a good boast there, isn't he? Telling everyone how great he is. Verse 12, Haman said moreover, Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow I am invited unto her also with the king. Yet, All this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Can you see it there? He's got everything. And yet he's still angry and sulking in a mood because of one person, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. The one who didn't bow down and reverence him. To varying degrees, that is the mentality of all unregenerate people, all who are not savingly united to the Lord Jesus Christ. They never seem to be satisfied. They always want more and more and more. How different it is for the Christian, the person whose sins are forgiven. People who are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. People who have treasures in heaven, with the greatest treasure of all, being who? Being the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest, the most precious treasure, 
the one who is altogether lovely. The one who is their great God and Saviour, who loved them and who gave himself for them. They are people who with thanksgiving in their heart say to God, Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Christians, what need have they of anything else? They have everything in Christ Jesus. Everything. If that is you, you have no interest in receiving the praise and adoration of men. And if you do, if you do require that, then you can be sure that you are not truly saved or that you have strayed from your Lord and Saviour, the one who was despised and rejected of men and the one who was nailed to a cross and lifted up to die. As a Christian, you have no interest in sitting in the seat of honour. For now you are happy to take a back seat, knowing that one day you will be seated in heavenly glory. And in a sense, you already are there, because you have the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, an earnest of those wonderful things to come. Look at verse 6 in Esther chapter 3. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai, wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Without in any way agreeing with Haman, I trust you can see how a tyrannical prime minister who was not constrained by human rights acts, who was not constrained by civil liberty groups, might have wanted to put put to death a palace servant who refused to bow down to him. I get it. When you're a tyrant, you might want to do that. But Haman didn't just want to destroy Mordecai, He wanted to destroy all of the Jews in the Medo-Persian Empire. The fury that was directed towards just one man was great enough to be directed against a whole nation of people. That is a lot of anger, isn't it? That is a lot of rage. And that is sin for you. I really don't think that Christians, a lot of Christians, appreciate the sinfulness of sin. That when the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, it means just that. God's law says, love thy neighbour as thyself, but sin manifests itself in a hatred of individuals and even a hatred of entire nations of people, where nation refers to people who are held together by the same customs. There is a sinful tendency to hate people whose customs are different to your own. 
Anyone, anyone who follows the news, who follows current affairs, knows of the distrust and the hatred between different nations and ethnic groups. Just look at what's going on in America. The hatred between different ethnic groups. Look at England. Look anywhere for that matter. Just look at this world. Observe what is going on in this world. It's not for nothing that in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking to his disciples about the last days, said, For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. But I'm focusing on, for nation shall rise against nation. People of different ethnic groups, different customs, rising up against each other. Do we not see that in our times? This morning we have looked at various aspects of this sinful world, bowing down and reverencing sinful men, idolising people and hating entire nations of people. How different all of that is to the heavenly vision of the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through to 11. John said, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders, and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honour, and power, and might, be unto our God for ever and ever. Amen. Will you be in that multitude from every nation worshipping and adoring Almighty God as someone who, having shown repentance towards God, having received forgiveness for all your sins, including your worship of the things of this world, your idolatries, your failure to love your neighbour as yourself, Will you be there as someone who has received forgiveness through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that your sins were laid upon him at Calvary's cross? Amen.